All right, let's roll. Grab a seat, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Going to be a fun night tonight. Get to play some ultimate uh, after our gathering and anxious for that. Great to have all of you guys here. I'm a big fan of uh, board games. Anybody else? You guys like you some board game? And uh, one, one of my favorite board games is, um, can I help you guys? You guys cool? You guys are like all chilling. I like it. One of my favorite board games is this board game called Blurt. Now, uh, what Blurt is, is you put up a definition from Webster's Dictionary, or um, you, you say a definition, and then everyone together has to blurt out what the word is that that definition is defining. It's a lot of fun, very loud and obnoxious. Often uh, when we play guys versus girls, the guys win because they're clearer, the more, more intelligent species. But, um, but tonight, tonight I want to challenge that perspective. And so we're going to play just one round of Blurt, all right? I'm going to put up a definition. I want to, you know, this is guys versus girls. I want to hear the word that this definition is describing. Cue it. Here we go. Excuse, a male, of course. What more proof do you need, women? I'm just kidding, but not at all. Um, the word is excuse. You all know what this is because you're phenomenal at them. Right? You started mastering it uh, when homework started being due. Right? I mean, some of you guys have come up with some of the most brilliant, articulate, ornate excuses. Um, and, and there's some good ones, right? Like, ah, my printer is doing the darndest of things. Right? It's like right, right when I go to print, it like sucks in the paper and it, it's almost as if it eats it, and it knows that my paper is due. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Couldn't you go and print it off somewhere else? No, my flash drive was broken. Well, couldn't you just email it to you? No, email was down too. I don't know. It's crazy. <laughs> Gmail was down for like 24 hours. Who would have thought, right? We're great at excuses. Uh, we say them often. I, I was doing some recon, um, trying to understand what culture thinks about excuses, and I found this quote from an article in Psychology Today from a psychologist who is a doctor and apparently really smart. Here's what he says. Check this out. We live in bad faith, says the psychologist. Our values and beliefs don't align with our actions. And rather than using this tension to signal the need for change, we take the path of least resistance and excuse ourselves. That's pretty deep. And then I kept searching, and I also found this quote. Um, this was a more... <laughs> I don't have my doctorate, but that's kind of what I think that, that first guy was saying. Um, we, we say a lot of excuses. Uh, I think we, um, in fact, if I want to be very specific, uh, most of our rhetoric, when you break them down, uh, the root of it, of our conversations, of the things that we say, are excuses. I'm going to ask God tonight to show us something uh, unbelievable from his word. Uh, tonight we have the chance to not just attack excuses, but to understand them in light of the scripture. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We start uh, week 2 of this brand new letter of Philippians. We're going to study it for 10 weeks all summer long. We'll end late August. So for those of you that are just around the summer, you get to process uh, this journey with us uh, for most of the summer. Now, I want to help you understand something before we look at the text tonight. Philippians chapter 1 verse 12. Um, 
some of you can remember a day before email when you had to uh, write notes on paper and put stamps, uh, stamps on them and then send them somewhere. How many of you remember those days, okay? Hold on, let, let me say it in a different way. How many of you had a pen pal? Anyone here have a pen pal? No way, not true. Second grade pen pal? That was your girlfriend, bro. You're mistaken. That wasn't, that wasn't a pen pal, right? Okay, right, right, but like think about the premise. Like pen pals, like you didn't, you couldn't wait on an email. Often you didn't even call these people. You were just waiting on the letter to arrive. That situation is very, very similar to the situation here in Philippi. Paul comes, plants the church, sets up deacons and elders, and then he moves on, planting more churches, being on mission. He ends up, as I shared last week, in a prison in Rome. And so what's happened is there have been rumors of Paul's whereabouts and of Paul's life and death. Uh, there are some in Philippi, even though they have a close-knit relationship, though distanced by many miles, they believe that Paul might be dead. Uh, there's some thoughts and some rumors that, uh, you know, that, that maybe he's even uh, frustrated or angry with Philippi. They hold a cherished relationship. They haven't talked in a while. Only messengers have carried some uh, notes and some uh, uh, messages back and forth. So listen, when this letter arrives in Philippi, you have to understand the significance. Like the messenger, I've got a letter straight from Paul. And like it, it wouldn't be like us right now where it's like doldrum. Oh, that's nice. You know, let's sing Kumbaya and have some fun. It was like, whoa, whoa you got a letter from Paul? Like tell everybody. And so everyone then gathers in the confines of what we would now call a church gathering, the believers, and they're hanging on every word because they're longing to hear about Paul's whereabouts. They're longing to hear if he's still alive. They're ready to be challenged again by his teaching. And so as he opens up tonight, we're going to study one of the shorter passages that we will in this whole journey. It is unbelievable. Picture a whole bunch of people hanging on every word from this brother of theirs that they long to see and I hear so dearly. So Philippians chapter 1, let's start in verse 12. Here we go. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment, he says, is for Christ. Verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are now much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed, he says in verse 15, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, verse 17, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And finally, verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul says, yes, I will rejoice. And I picture a whole bunch of people just hanging on every word that Paul shares. So let's, in light of that, start here in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Well, what's happened to him? He's in prison in Rome. What he's saying is my current situation in prison in Rome has been used to advance the gospel. I think most of us would think that Paul should say something like this, okay? This is not the, the scripture, just so you understand. This is my version of what I think we would want him to say. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has been incredibly difficult and has made it nearly impossible to share the gospel. That's how many of us would approach it. 
Like, you'll never believe this. I'm in prison. There's nothing else I can do. The gospel, in terms of uh, God's use of me, is now done. Every single time you think, believe, say any statement that now God cannot, I want you to understand that you're communicating something that is anti the complete opposite of the character of God. No, God always can. The question is, is he and will he? But he always can. Okay, so he doesn't say this. Instead, one more time, he says this in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, me being in prison, has served to advance the gospel. Now, uh, we used to get when we were kids like old uh, Sears and JCPenney catalogs, okay? And at Christmas time, that was how we looked for toys. Now you guys go on Amazon. When I was a kid, we searched through the JCPenney catalog, okay? It was awesome, right? We, we were trying to connect the commercial with the catalog. Oh, I saw that. Well, I always talk about the catalog in terms of the memorized or the known stories that God puts in your heart after he saves you as he begins to to not just write the word on your heart, but as he begins to store up his word in your mind and your heart collectively. And so when I hear this story, read this word, I instantly think of a good friend in Genesis named Joseph. Okay, some of you guys have seen the, the movie, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolored Dreamcut. Have you guys seen that? Okay, if you've ever been to Branson, maybe you've seen that. I don't even know if they have that in Branson. It, just sound, it sounds like a Branson kind of thing. Um, so here's what happens to Joseph. His brothers sell him, not good. They leave him for dead. He ends up as a slave. He rises in power, gets deceived, and this pattern continues. He ends up being like almost in charge of Egypt, okay? Pretty much ru running Egypt underneath Pharaoh. Now, there's a famine in the land. And what ends up happening in the story is his brothers who sold him, who punked him out, end up having to come to Joseph in search of food. Joseph recognizes that it's his brothers, and this is his opportunity to get some revenge. He's in power. He can say, nope, you guys are going to starve to death. No soup for you, literally, right? Like, there's nothing here for you. Instead, what does he say? Well, you intended for evil. God intended for good. And so here we, here we are again. Hey, Rome, what you intended for evil, guess what? God will use it anyway. You thought you would put me in prison and that the gospel advancement would halt? Nope. Nice try. Didn't work. Why? Because the gospel isn't banking on the shoulders of man. The gospel is hanging on the shoulders of a great God who's alive and well. And so it moves on. Now, let's look at some life scenarios quickly, shall we? Cue the white slide. How about this? Hang with me here, okay? Some of you guys in this room have had a child. Some of you guys in this room have, have blown out a, a tire on the interstate. Any, any of you guys blown out a tire? Okay. It's a horrific experience, isn't it? It's pretty traumatizing. Have you made it? Like, are you gathered back? You hanging in? All right, good. Is your car still there? Okay. It was like three years ago. Um, you get really grown up when you pick up your own prescriptions, right? You guys remember that? The first time you picked up a prescription? Yes, I'll have the uh, tetracycline. I don't even know what that, I don't even know what that is. Uh, is, that a, is, that a, is that a drug? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I have to look that up because I'm like, what did I, did I just say something bad without knowing it? What does tetracycline do? Acne, that's why I know what it is. And actually that fits well, amen? Right? Right? I had really bad acne, that's why I thought of it, okay? Uh, you're on a walk in the neighborhood. I know this seems like a spattering of goods and bads, but 
experienced the death of a loved one. Some of you uh, maybe once or thrice have been in an elevator in a hotel. Is there any other awkward place more than that, right? Especially when you come out of the pool and you have your shirt off and then someone walks in after a wedding reception. You know what I mean? You're like in your sandals with your shirt off as a guy, right? And someone... And so... And someone walks in like wearing, you know, a, a complete dress and, hey, hey, you know. And really the only thing to say at that point is, coming from the pool? Yep, sure am, right? Um, mowing the lawn, dealing with divorce, watching a kid's sporting event. Now, every single one of these, in terms of our missionality, can either be, next slide, a, an excuse or an opportunity. Seriously, people have kids, they instantly become recluses, some. And they blame their children on their lack of gospel sharing. Listen, the gospel is not advancing anymore in my life because I had me some children. And they cry and they need to eat and they take a lot of time and energy. I've heard people say, look, I've gone through a divorce. God can't use me. No, you're mistaken. Those of you that have gone through, the, through divorce, and I would even say, I uh, haven't found someone else. Now your testimony, now your opportunity to share is, I thought I needed a spouse to be fulfilled. And what God's taught me, even in the pain of divorce, is that all I need is him. Some of you guys have gone through the loss of a loved one, right? And, and the world is looking in to see how you process death. And yes, it could be an excuse for your depression or for you sinking in a hole. Instead, some of you know how great of an opportunity it is. Even for me in the loss of my grandmother last week, how the opportunity has afforded me to talk about her life in pursuit of Christ. And on and on. I mean, I know some, some of these things seem more trivial, but seriously, you, you, you're on a walk in the neighborhood. And it could just be an excuse to get some you time, which does not exist. Just go ahead and wipe you time from your vocabulary. You time, once you were bought at a price, is gone. It is all his time. And that is not a burden, that is a blessing. Are you guys with me? Like it's an amazing thing to be on his time clock. So you're walking through the neighborhood. It's one of the most amazing opportunities, right? Like you're, and all these people are coming outside and, and uh, amazing conversations can happen. For me, my kids weren't a distraction. They were a huge opportunity. Why? You go to a park. You go to a park by yourself, you're a creeper. You go to a park with your kids, and all of a sudden, like, amazing missional opportunities. Because I'm, I'm there, I talk about it all the time. I'm swinging my kids, we're running around, and guess who's there? My neighbors, the people who live right next to me. They're either excuses or opportunities. Now, we could pose any life scenario. Here's what happens at this point. In most teachings on this, here's the statement that most often comes next, Okay? Stop using excuses and start seeing opportunities. We get really practical. I get red in the face. I start saying, hey, hey, you ignoramuses, stop excusing yourself. Stop using excuses. Right? Like start seeing your whole life as an opportunity. That's how I grew up. Pragmatics, pragmatics, pragmatics. It was condemnation forcing change. It was us in here together, myself included, realizing we're not really sharing the gospel much, and we're really giving a lot of, at times, poor excuses. And so then, out of condemnation, feeling bad for that, we're like, yeah, you're right, I have to get better. Yeah, I have to, like, no more excuses. And it's like you're in a Christian locker room. And then you leave, and then you guys know what happens the next morning after the big game. The locker room speech is already forgotten. So this has to go by the wayside. 
We can't come together right now and even like, you know, punch each other in the face and get each other riled up to stop making excuses. There has to be something else. There has to be something more. So how about a little, uh, how about a little Luke 24, shall we? Check this out. Okay. But on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, at early, uh, at early dawn, they went to the tomb. Some of you guys are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Mark, come on, man. It's not Easter Sunday. You're not wearing a fluorescent, right? Like I forgot my clip-on tie. Mark, it's not Easter, man. Why are you going to share the Easter story? Check this out. They went to the tomb. This is the ladies taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And I just want to contend to you, this is an amazing moment in all of our existences. They come in the tomb. Nobody's there. And what they begin thinking is, did someone steal him? Someone take him? Did someone move him to another tomb? It showed in verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, I mean, they're wondering, they're you know, questioning. Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling Abercrombie and Fitch. Next slide, verse 5. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, and somebody please better get, right? Why do you seek the living among the dead? You're going to come to a tomb looking for the living Lord Jesus. You've come to the wrong place. This is a place of the dead. But you're looking for someone that's alive. Because don't you remember what he said? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you how he was still in Galilee. That the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. And be crucified. And on the third day. What's the word say? Rise. Now what does Luke 24 have to do with anything else? Next, uh, next slide. Do you have any doubts about the resurrection? Our evangelism efforts are directly connected to your belief about the resurrection. So my son today, okay, super fired up, all right? I get a FaceTime call at 3.30, okay? So my wife's driving, holding the phone up on FaceTime for my kids in the back, not, not condoning her behavior, right? But it worked. She's like driving FaceTime. How about technology? My wife is driving, and I'm talking to my kids on video, right? Like, how crazy is that? It's blown my mind when I was a kid, right? So, so my son, Dawson, he's like, Daddy, you'll never believe it. I'm like, what's up, buddy, you know? He's like, at Wapa Horse Pool today, they let me go down the slide even though I'm not tall enough. Well, on one side, I'm really pumped for him. On the other side, I'm like, man, this is a liability, right? right? Like, so some lifeguard was like, ah, don't worry about it. All right, man. So apparently what happens is Dawson just goes up and down. Have you guys been on the death slide at Wapa Horse? Right? Like when you're a kid, think about how tall that slide would seem to a, who my son is a six-year-old. I mean, that would have been like the biggest thing ever. So he's up and down, up and down. So they show up here tonight. They're getting some hot dogs before first service. And Mrs. Gresham, who he does not know, okay, walks in the room. I, I swear this happened. He walks up to her. Uh, hi, today at Wapahorse Park, they have a really cool pool, and they have a really awesome slide. And today, the lifeguard let me go down even though I wasn't tall enough. He turns and he walks away. True story. <laughs> True story. He has no idea who she is. Like, he's never met her in her life. He's so fired up about talking, like, he's just walking up to strangers. And he literally just mic dropped it and just walked away, you know? I'm like, son, that's a bold move. But you naturally talk about what you love, 100%. You naturally talk about what you love. So listen, our lack of evangelism 
As Paul's in the prison cell and the gospel advances, our lack in light of our circumstance is not a fix-it issue. It is a belief in the resurrection issue, period. Do you have doubts about the resurrection? I'm gonna tell you tonight, it will richly impact your proclamation of the gospel. So I wanna put us into four different categories. Okay, some of you first, this is what you believe on the resurrection. It did not happen, Jesus is dead, therefore there is no good news. Listen, I want to apologize to the non-believers in the room. On behalf of all churches, a lot of times we say words without defining them, and I'm sorry for that. We need to do a better job. So when you hear the word gospel, it's one of those words that you hear a lot in church context. I want to make sure you understand what that means. It means good news. When you read the word uh, gospel in the scripture, when you hear me say it, it means good news. Now, I want to make sure you know what that means. The good news is that Jesus came, left heaven, lived perfectly on this earth. He had to, to be a perfect sacrifice. He then dies on a cross on his own accord. Even though it seems like humans killed him, he told Pontius Pilate, do whatever you want, I'm going to this cross. The power is not in your hands, it's in, it's in my father's. He willfully, willingly goes to the cross. He dies, he bleeds out. His blood is then atonement or forgiveness for our sins. And the good news is, though he died three days later, as we just saw, he stepped out the tomb, and the promise of the scripture is he's coming back to take his church home. When I say good news, that's what I mean. And so even as I share all of that, I wanna tell you, I'm again a firm believer in the good news, and that that is good news. So some of you tonight, though, I'm so glad you're here. This is where you're at. Jesus is dead. Okay, I saw the movie. No, he's dead, right? Therefore, there is no good news. You'll get that later. Next category. Some of you think it's possible, however unlikely. Therefore, having full confidence in good news is met with great reluctance. Look, it's possibly resurrected, but... Now, here's where this gets tough. The scripture says in James 2 that faith without works is dead. Your, your faith will lead to action. And so some of you are like, whoa, whoa, hold on, Mark. I've been a believer all my life. And so you're saying, if I don't proclaim the gospel out of my mouth and through my life, are you saying I'm doubting the resurrection? Yeah, actually, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because faith and action have to be married. You can't, listen, you can't say you believe in the power of the resurrection and then not live in light of it. Are you guys with me? You can't disconnect those two things. But let's go ahead and be honest, that is much of our existence. Oh, I believe in Jesus. He's awesome. He's so incredible. Well, okay, but yeah, but the, the problem is I never hear you telling one lost person out of love that he can, in fact, redeem them too. It, it's like you're bottling it up for 1-800-YOSELF. Like, that seems like an issue. And so some of you are like, well, that's not me. Well, if we just went on your action... Your faith would say that you have great reluctance in sharing because there's tremendous doubt about the resurrection. Some of you may be one step further, next slide, you would say, look, it's probable, but there's a slim chance that it's all contrived or made up. This is probably the greatest percentage in the room. 98% sure the resurrection happened, but I'm going to leave room for error. 2%. 2% says we've made this up to make ourselves feel better about our eternity so that funerals go a little bit better. We say the old classic cliche, they're in a better place, and really what that means, and again, this is in the depths of your heart that rarely gets communicated, really what that means is they're in a nice coffin. Okay. Now there's a whole other category of people, some of which are here today, 
that embrace this teaching, Jesus resurrected from the dead, no doubt. And because of that, all life and hope stem from that remarkable truth. You recognize it's remarkable. You're willing to confess, look, resurrection from the dead is not an everyday occurrence, but in Christ possible and in Christ happened. And so because of that, there is no purpose of my life except telling everyone else that my God is alive. But that seems pretty distant, right, than than some of how you're living in the purposes of your life. Seriously, Paul in a prison cell, he's like, the gospel will advance. You want to go ahead and bring me through the ringer? Bring tremendous sickness and calamity on my family? The gospel will advance. Why? Because in every situation, in every circumstance, around whomever, I'm like a kid that's got a story to tell. And I don't care who's listening or who's not. I'm excited about the fact that my God is not a myth or a fairy tale, but that he's alive. And some of you, when you gather around other believers, all of a sudden God transforms into something else. But when you're alone, all doubt, all shame, all condemnation. So, listen, tonight, like we're not here to Dr. Phil one another, right? We're not here to say, hey, listen, you just need to try harder. I'm not here tonight to give you 17 evangelistic tactics and to say, all right, so start with this. When you die, do you know where you're going to go? What I am going to say is, when you believe in the resurrection, every single person you interact with is an unbelievable opportunity for you to share yet again the most powerful truth that you could ever behold on your lips. That a God came in his love and he died in his love and he resurrected in his love and he's coming back because of love. Crazy. So tonight, unfortunately, some of you are feeling condemnation right now. You're like looking at your evangelistic, you know, uh, resume. And you're like, it's kind of weak sauce. All right, like, like Mark, what I'm realizing tonight is maybe I doubt the resurrection a whole lot more than I've, I've given myself credit for. Scripture says there's no condemnation in Christ. Conviction is from the Holy Spirit, amen? The difference between conviction and condemnation, condemnation breeds guilt. Conviction breeds repentance. Conviction says, I'm going to stop in the tracks of my sin. And you're like, but, but how is sin unbelief? Think about the origination of sin. In the garden, Satan said, did God really say? And what did Eve do? She doubted. Doubt and unbelief and sin are all coexisting. Does that make sense? So conviction brings repentance. I stop in the tracks of my sin and instead I turn and I grasp and pursue and press into the Lord Jesus. Now, he goes on as he teaches this premise further. And we're going to have to wrestle with some harder truths. Verse 13. This is crazy. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial, imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. This is awesome. Check this out. So when Paul was in prison, he was chained to a guard. Okay. So, so like, get a picture of this right. Like, this is, this is like captive audience. Okay. So the imperial guard would, would work in shifts. Okay, so let's say six, seven, eight hours at a time. Maybe let's say eight or nine or ten of them, right, chained to Paul. So imagine, right, like the the chains on Paul, the chains on the guard. 
hey, what's up, man? You know? And, and, and again, many of us think that Paul would just be like, hey, what's up? So tonight, if you died, where would you go? You know? <laughs> like, we picture that that's evangelism. I, I don't think that's the way it worked. Okay? I think Paul's chain and the guard looks over at him, probably not expecting any kind of conversation. But guess what? Paul, no excuse, opportunity. And not just because he's been taught evangelism, but because he believes Jesus is alive. So he looks over and he's like, hey, man, so how is it being a Roman guard? Tell me that. How is it being that? And the guard's like, what do you, like, what do you care? Hey, man, I'm just interested, you know? Hey, do you got any kids? You got any kids at home, right? And, the, and this guard's starting to be like, why, like who, why does this guy care? And after about 10 minutes of conversation, the guard looks at him and is like, what's your deal, man? Like, what are you in here for? Paul's like, say that again? Yeah, like, like what are you in here for? Well, uh, in, in the case that you asked, um, let me go ahead and share. See, see, I was a persecutor of Christians. I was killing people, which would certainly get the attention of a Roman. He's like, right on, man. It's pretty hardcore, yeah. I was killing people. I was presiding over persecution. You'll never believe this. Listen, so I'm on my way to Damascus, and all of a sudden the voice of the Lord Jesus calls out from heaven and says, Saul, Saul, my used-to-be name, why are you persecuting me? And I get blinded, and all of a sudden he calls me to tell everyone in the world that I possibly can that he's alive. So in the case that you're asking, what started happening is I started telling everybody that the Lord Jesus is alive. People left me for dead. They were beating me. I was getting scores, all kinds of chaos, and now I'm in this prison because I believe he's alive and I'm unashamed to say it. I thought you were going to say robbery or something, you know? Like, that's kind of a, it's kind of a. So what starts to happen, right? The guard leaves his shift, and he looks at the guy taking his place, and he's like, whoo, right? And the next guy comes. Hey, man, you got any kids, you know? And here we go. Now, the scripture says, look at verse 13, uh, throughout the whole imperial guard, now, I've tried to do as much research as I possibly can to know what this number is. I'm, I'm going to guess because I've seen ranges. I'm going to say right now at least 6,000. At least 6,000. Now, did all 6,000 sit on the end of the chain? No. What happened? The guards leave and they're like, "Woo! there's a brother in there who's certainly fired up about something. Like, it's crazy. He's chained up. I mean, I even see scars on his back. He's, he's definitely been scourged, whipped, beaten at times. But this brother is passionate about something. And, in fact, he says, Jesus. You know, have you heard of Jesus? Yeah. Oh, didn't we kill him back in Jerusalem a while back? Yeah, we did. But he says he's alive. And the reputation and the message, start, listen, starts to get passed through non-believers. The non-believing Roman guards are spreading the gospel. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the situation. It doesn't matter the circumstance. Again, most of us in that case, doldrum, you know, looking at ourselves, feeling sorry for ourselves. Can't believe this. I'm in chains again for the gospel. Unbelievable. And you name your scenario. But instead, Paul's like, I got a captive audience. So listen to this story. Uh, we went to Ecuador this uh, uh, past spring. One of my good buddies, Mike Malone, some of you guys know him. Uh, he's one of our older seasoned folks here, 62 years old, uh, beast, been a good friend for a long time. Okay, this is one of the most fired up evangelistic dudes that I've ever seen, okay? The dude, like with a captive audience, it's go time. So we're on our way to Ecuador. We're on the long flight from, I forget where we flew from, but on a long flight from Houston, I think, to Ecuador. Sure enough, Mike gets put right next to a dude in the airplane, completely random, right? 
And I mean, I give him 15, 20 seconds. And Mike's already looking at, I can tell they're already talking, okay? So I'm like, you know, we're playing around in our row, and I like to throw things on airplanes, so I'm like chucking food and stuff and having fun. I like end up taking a little snooze. I wake up like three hours later. Guess what? Mike's still talking to this guy, okay? I mean, all the way until we land, Mike engages this dude. Come to find out the dude's far from Christ. In, fa- in fact, I would even go as far as to say an atheist. And so, but what this dude did the whole time to Mike is ask questions. And they just had this gospel conversation because Mike was willing not just to put the headphones on. He probably doesn't even own a pair, even know what they are. But he didn't just put the headphones on. Instead, he looked at the dude and started engaging his life. He knows that every single moment of every single day is an opportunity. That brother, I hear stories all the time. He like goes golfing, you know, and he, they're like sitting there putting. And all of a sudden, they're talking about the gospel. Who's your captive audience? I would say this, it's probably often the same audience that you've gotten hard and crusty towards. Well, the co-workers, family members, you've grown in anger and disdain because of their lack of response to the gospel. A captive audience is beautiful. And some of you I know, you're like, but, but I, don't, I don't know where to start or I don't know what to do. That's why it comes back to a resurrected Christ. Just like a kid who's gone down a slide. You've got a story to tell. You've got something to share. And you're like, but Mark, what if they don't receive it? They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting him. He told the disciples that. They're not hating you. They're hating him. You get to be a minister and representative and ambassador of reconciliation. That's what you get to spend your life doing. That's a great gift, a calling. It's a blessing, not a burden. So Paul in a prison cell is like, hey, why don't you tell your buddy? Next time bring two. Chain me on both sides, right? And we'll keep sharing. Verse 14 adds this, check this. And most of the brothers... Having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, I love this, are now much more bold to speak the word without fear. Okay. This passage says two things. If we just said, are you bold or not in this room? And said, everyone who believes they're bold on one side, everyone believes uh, who, who, you know, you, you believe you're not bold to the other side, it would be an interesting delineation, right? Some of you in this room would say, nope, not bold. Others of you would say, 100%, I, I don't care, I'm a bold dude. But what this passage says is that apparently after Paul leaves Philippi many years ago, it's maybe the brothers in Philippi do something kind of like the disciples did when Jesus uh, was, was arrested. When Jesus was arrested, the disciples, like, tail between their legs, literally run because they think they're next. That's when Peter denies the name of Jesus to a nine, 10-year-old servant girl. Uh, most of the disciples scatter and run. They're fearful. Maybe some of the brothers in Philippi do the same thing. Because if they can grow in boldness, that means that at one point they were lacking in boldness or at least less in boldness. So what Paul says is, all right, there was some growth in there. And so for all those in here who consider yourself not bold, let me tell you something. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit inside of you, you can, and I would say this, will in Christ grow. You guys know, like some of the most powerful times of hearing the gospel are when Shy McGee all of a sudden like chime in, right? I've seen this over and over. Like, you know, all of a sudden the person that barely says a word is in a conversation, you know, and they're the kind of people that like always look down. 
And then I've been in several situations where all of a sudden, like, that kind of person, like, looks up. And you, like, look over at them, like, okay. okay. <laughs> Eye contact, that's a start, right? And then pretty soon, they just start to share. And, and everyone's like, like, where in the world did that, like, where in the world did that come from? It's because God can do a sanctifying work in your boldness. And so for some of you that feel like, man, yeah, I'm going to leave boldness to this person. Well, the scripture says God did not give us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power of love and of sound mind. He's given us a spirit, not of timidity, or rather in my layman's terms, not of weak sauce, but of something that, have, that has strength and power. Okay. So that's the first thing, is there's a growth in boldness. The second thing is that boldness breeds boldness. And not from the pulpit. When we were praying before the gathering tonight, I was telling the guys, like, my heart tonight is praying that I would receive this as a Christian and that I wouldn't preach this like a pastor. You're like, well, what do you, what do you mean by that? Listen, it's very, very easy to hide behind this. It's very, very easy to sit in the giftings that God has given me just like the giftings God's given you and to be bold publicly and then walk out like a scared chicken. It's very, very easy to do that. I can proclaim the truth of Christ. I can seem like I'm, I, I believe it strongly. And then when I have an opportunity out of those doors to share, it is very, very easy to clam up. So I don't want to be bold behind a pulpit. My desire and longing is that the consistency of my faith is seen not just in the word that I preach, but in the life that I live. So I was like, God, please do that work in me. And I'm praying that for you because in public, as we journey together as a community, boldness breeds boldness. You see your brothers or sisters take a stand for the gospel and doesn't it all of a sudden do something in you where you're like, yeah, he's worth fighting for. He's worth taking a stand for. This isn't my gospel anyway. It's not my story. I'm just, I just get the chance to share it. And so could you imagine, right, these brothers in Philippi hearing that Paul's in prison and it not being a means of striking fear. Instead, what does it do? They're like, all right, it's go time then. So those of you that are gifted in boldness or even called in boldness or see yourself, I pray that in humility you will allow others to hear stories of sharing the gospel so that they could be encouraged in their own faith that they in Christ, guided by the Spirit, can do it too. Don't be ashamed of sharing those stories. Okay? Now, all of this is the reality of a situation. Now we move to some diciness. Okay? Our final three verses. Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. This is weird. Like, like how does he know this, right? He, he left Philippi a long time ago. And what does it mean to preach Christ in rivalry? Well, that's the first thing I need you to see. Whoever is preaching uh, from envy and rivalry, they're still preaching what? Come on. They're still preaching Christ. And so he's not attacking what they're preaching. He's attacking their motive. He's saying their motive is for selfish gain. Their motive is for selfish ambition. Um, very particularly, maybe he's heard from messengers that there's some people, because he's not there, that are stepping in and trying to pull attention to themselves. Listen, this is why it is so dangerous, I talk about it here all the time, to elevate any man above another in Christ. Our focal point, our image of worship should always, will always, can always be the person of Jesus. Okay? The moment man makes much of man, 
it makes it so easy for all the rest of us to then indulge in that. And this could be any kind of man. It could be in your circle of friends. It could be a, a leader. It could be whoever. But apparently in Paul's stead, some people are, are preaching Christ, but they're doing it to get a paycheck. Or they're doing it to feel authority. Their motive in their heart is in error. I say all the time here that um, it's easy to, to, to challenge action, but doesn't it get really personal when someone starts questioning your motive? Like, doesn't it get really, really heavy when someone says, yeah, yeah, um, I think you're actually doing that for yourself. Like it's one thing to, to, again, like condemn something that you've actually done in practice, but it's a whole other thing to dig into your heart and say, yeah, actually, I, I, think, you're, I think you're doing that whole thing to bring full attention to you. And so from miles and miles apart, Paul's saying, look, there are some that are preaching like this. They're preaching Christ, but then there are others, he says, that are doing from, from goodwill. There are others that have a good heart. Both are preaching Christ, some with bad motives, some with good. Verse 16 is beautiful. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. It's not a surprise to me that many of us have baggage in terms of sharing our faith. Because the doing it out of love, we've seen it done otherwise. We've seen the angry, red-faced Christian look in the face of a non-believer and with tremendous angst not share the gospel but lash the gospel. Not love the gospel but hate in, in rhetoric the message of the gospel. We've seen that. We've experienced it. And some of you guys have been to conferences where like people have taught the steps and not the love of people. And so then what happens? What happens is then the non-believer becomes the Christian project. And you stop seeing people and you stop praying for names and you start seeing them as numbers to get converted so that your projects can move from failed to success. That is not the work of Christ. You know it because you're a testimony to it. Did Jesus see you as a project? Was his message of love and grace communicated to you from him with hatred? No, it was done so with tremendous compassion. It was done so with an overextension of grace. Don't you remember the moment that you first heard of the love of Christ and it sank into your heart as true? In that moment, there was nothing else in the way between you and God. His grace was so real, you could taste it. His love was more than a feeling. It was now an existence. It, it, it now became a part of you. And yet, in our frustration of non-believers not responding to the gospel, we get angry with them instead of overextending love and compassion and mercy and grace. What if tonight the only work that happened from this whole text was if your heart underwent a complete shift towards those people that you started to hate because they hate your God? You stopped praying for their salvation. You stopped sharing. You've just gotten so frustrated with that family member, that friend, that classmate, that coworker that you've literally distanced yourself and you've now seen them as a project. And I want to tell you something. That person is lost and in desperate need of a savior that they can in reality meet just like you did. That's what Paul's saying. Um, some have done it 
out of selfish ambition and rivalry and envy, like jealous of me, Paul's saying, but others from goodwill and others in love. Listen, uh, don't you think that the world would respond a little bit different if collectively as believers our message came from a sense of love? I want to make sure you understand something, though. That doesn't mean tolerant. Okay? The message of the gospel with love doesn't mean, oh, yeah, you go ahead and worship Buddha, and you go ahead and do your thing with Joseph Smith, and you go ahead and do that new age thing, and you find God through yoga. No, that's not what, that's not what sharing the gospel in love means. It doesn't mean becoming tolerant. It doesn't mean negating that we need to stand on the only one way to come to God, and that is hear it again through Jesus. There's no other way. So it doesn't mean lessening that truth or shifting that truth or now all of a sudden saying, yeah, you know what? We really love each other, so you just do your thing and get to God, and we'll all end up in the great party together. That's not the truth. So we can't shrink back from the truth, but we can live the truth and share the truth in love. All those who claim victory in Joseph Smith, they need to know Joseph Smith is dead. They need to hear that message in love. They need to know that the grace that they desperately need can come from an alive God. Everyone who's trying to find God through spiritualism and new ageism, and I would even say oftentimes in demonic ways, they need to understand in love that looking in the wrong places. So maybe tonight, like though you've been burned in the past by those who have shared the gospel with you or you've seen share the gospel in a hated way, I want to just challenge you. Have you become that to some? Not the agent of love, grace, mercy, and compassion, but actually the agent of hatred and malice. Paul says the latter do it out of love because they know that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. They understand that. Verse 17, he adds this further in his teaching. He says, uh, next slide, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition. And, and the selfish ambition, I think, here is Paul's gone. I got an opportunity. Like, he's Paul, man. He plant, plants church ever, everywhere. Like, he, he's doing a good thing. I've got a chance to step in and make my name great. That's what he's saying. They do it out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. This is kind of strange. Like, like how, would, how would these teachers or preachers of Christ in rivalry, like, hurt Paul in prison. Well, there's a lot of theories to this. Here's what I think happens. Is they start saying things in front of the Romans like, yeah, man, I can't believe that guy, Paul. Can you believe that, Roman? Like, can you believe that Paul would come here and preach so recklessly, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's true. Oh, did you know that Paul said this? No, I didn't know that, but I'll make sure the right authorities know that. And then behind closed doors, in the settings where it's safe, then all of a sudden they're preaching Christ, the powerful truth of Christ, and gaining in a winsome way for themselves followers. You see what I'm saying? And so people make it up to Rome, hey, we need to take care of this Paul. Like Paul, he needs to die. Well, all these guys behind him are growing. Finally here in verse 18, check this out. Unbelievable. This is crazy to me, so please hang with me here. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Do you guys understand what he's saying? Even the dudes that are preaching Christ out of rivalry and selfish ambition, at least they're preaching Christ. So he says, I'm going to rejoice. Those who are preaching it in goodwill, I'm going to rejoice in that too. 
What's the point? God can use anything to proclaim his name. Even you. Ill-equipped, saying the wrong thing, saying it in the wrong time. The excuses that you have mounted up believing that God has called you to do things incredibly perfect and only in the perfect presentation that comes from a perfect servant will someone respond to the gospel. Do you understand how pompous and arrogant that is? It has to be in the right time. It has to be relational evangelism. It can't be like this. It can't be like that. And these dudes are preaching the gospel, trying to make themselves great, and people are still coming to Christ. It's because God doesn't need us, need us at all. He desires us, longs for us, uses us as ambassadors. But our God's doing his thing, amen? Now, can I show you something really crazy? Mark 16, check this out. Next slide. Mark 16, here we go, we're coming. There it is. Afterward. He appeared, this is after his resurrection. He appeared to the, le- to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at the table, the disciples that are left. Unbelievable moment in the scripture, check this out. And he rebuked them. You guys all see the word them right there, right? So Jesus comes in, he's just resurrected. He walks in and he starts throwing down, rebuking them, calling them to task for their unbelief and harshness of heart, hardness of heart. Because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. He's challenging their belief or thoughts on the resurrection. And then in his next breath, he says, no big deal. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. What in the world? He he rebukes them for their lack of faith and then says a very menial statement, go preach the whole gospel to everybody. And they have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? Mike dropped Jesus, gone. Like, what in the world is happening? Why does he do this? He rebukes them. He calls them. Later, he empowers them with the Spirit. Let's make this statement. Next slide. Please see this. The call to share the gospel is not to perfected people. It is to the ransomed, to the followers of Christ, to those that believe in the resurrection, He rebukes them for their unbelief. He then calls them to something monumental. He then empowers them with the spirit and they go on 10 of 11 to die because they believed he had really risen. We have this image in our mind that only Paul, of course Paul, I mean the dude was hardcore, he's crazy, chained to anybody. It doesn't matter what circumstance. Of course he's not gonna find an excuse. Listen, Paul and you have the same spirit. You're like, but but I'm not a called apostle. Okay, I'll give you that. You're right. You're not an apostle in the way that Paul was. One who had seen the risen Christ as he saw in the early parts of Acts and then sent as an apostle is. I'll give you that one. But I'll raise you the fact that you have the same spirit that he does. The same access to God that Paul does. The same calling as a follower of Christ that he does. To proclaim to all creation this awesome gospel. And if not, scripture says this. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. 
P.I. agree. If he's dead, then all of this, I'll go as far as to say, is pointless. That we've convinced ourselves that there's a greater hope. We've figured out ways to talk about truth so that we all feel better about ourselves. And then every single one of us are still in our sins. But there's some of you that are like, no. I know what God's done in me. I know the addictions that I don't have anymore. I know the hopelessness that has turned to hope. I know how I used to pursue happiness, but now I have joy. I know how I used to be entrenched in lust. Now I'm fueled only by the passion for Christ. I know these things. I know what God's done. So with me as the evidence, you're saying... I know that the gospel is not just a myth or fairy tale or written about in an old ancient book. I know that it's real because it's done something in me and it's doing something through me. So I am a testimony to the power of the resurrection. No, my faith is not futile. No, my faith is real. My God is alive and therefore try to shut me up. And it's so easy. Like a Christian locker room to share in all of this together tonight. And then tomorrow morning, look to the gas station clerk in the eye with a frown on our face and the dull drumness of our stress and communicate to him by our lack of pursuit, love, engagement, and conversation that my God is dead. And I say, tonight is more than a locker room pep rally. Every single one of you tonight have the chance to leave here not with a message of be a better evangelizer but with the understanding that all of this comes down to your belief in the resurrection. Let's stand together. Tonight's really heavy because I know a lot of you are processing a lot of things right now. I even think there's some of you that are processing if your faith is real. Because I believe in the power of prayer, because I believe in the opportunity of repentance and receiving grace. What I want to do right now is make this whole room a sanctuary of prayer. Listen, the reality is some of you guys haven't talked to him in a long time. Some of you, it's been days, weeks, months. And you're reminded again right now in this moment, in truth, that you serve a God and not an idea. So confess that to him. Cry out for him to increase your faith. Some of you have laid excuse upon excuse, thinking that you have more time or that this person doesn't need it. And on and on, you've begun to see people's projects. Let's ask God tonight to do a tremendous work in our heart. 
Seriously, like you have this chance right now in freedom to cry out to him. So let's pray together. Come on, church. Cry out to him. Plead to him. Repent. So God, your word says that you're the author and perfecter of faith. And so our confession is we need you. We need your rebuke. We need conviction from your spirit. We need you in the authoring of our faith to increase it. God, right now in an image, I pray that you put the empty tomb before us. I pray that you would release the shackles that we put on ourselves that say that our sins haven't been dealt with. I pray tonight, God, that you loose the message that we've held so deeply in our heart for ourselves, and God, that you would loose it, that our proclamation of the gospel would be shared in belief and in truth. I pray, God, in power that you will bring salvation to those around us soon that it would encourage our weak and feeble faith in seeing how you can use even us. Not so that we could boast, but so that we could exalt you yet again. So God, right now in this moment, I pray that you would remind us that the resurrection is real. Let's worship together.